Welcome to the Nonprofit Podcast. I'm Kara, fundraising coach here at DonorBox. And I feel like today's intro music should be some sort of Frank Sinatra song. But today, the Nonprofit Podcast brings you a two-for-one from New York City, where I get to talk to Josiah Haken, the CEO of City Relief. City Relief mobilizes thousands of volunteers every year as they compassionately serve individuals and families struggling with homelessness. What I love most is they have an innovative approach to delivering hope and resources to the communities who need it most with the goal of walking alongside those looking for life transformation. And I will also say from my personal experience that those looking for and those who find personal transfer or life transformation aren't always the individuals seeking shelter and a warm meal. It's often those who step in to serve. So a full disclosure, I've been a volunteer with this amazing organization for a number of years. And when Josiah started his own podcast, Neighbors With No Doors, I knew we had to have him on the nonprofit podcast. And today we do in a shared interview where I get to ask him about city relief and learn about homelessness. Um, so settle in and get ready for some gritty reality. And I am very eager to get this conversation started. So Josiah, you say in your intro to your podcast, um, Neighbors With No Doors, that you want to spend time with people who have experienced homelessness and learn from industry experts. The first time I heard this, I thought, oh my gosh, you are the expert everyone needs to know. And I felt strongly that you needed to be the guest seat in your own podcast. So I guess I'm taking this over today because I want to hear from you and learn from you. And I will honestly say that I have been feeling like a kid at Christmas time. Um, I've been waking up at night, at night and thinking about questions I want to ask you. So I really want to learn more from you today. Well, it is a joy to be here, Kara. Always, any chance I get, any chance I get to hang out with you and, and talk about these things is always a pleasure. Um, you, your work and your volunteering and your investment in our work over the years has just been just inspiring to me. I know it's kept me going sometimes through the rough stretches. Um, so yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. And again, I'm excited for my listeners at the Neighbors with No Doors podcast to uh, get a chance to hear from me and answering questions instead of being the one asking them. Right. Um, I will start with this. My my uh, One of my very favorite musicals that it has lyrics. It says, New York City is the greatest city in the world. The skyline is iconic. It's the backdrop of some of my very favorite movies, um, but it's a gritty city too. And it's not for the faint of heart. I've learned that firsthand. So my question for you is why New York? So I, I would even say I didn't choose New York. New York chose me. Um, I grew up in West Africa uh, as the son of missionaries. And then we moved uh, when I was in high school to Hershey, Pennsylvania. Um, and then from there, I just started sort of finding opportunities to get involved in different places. And I tease people, I had an Uber driver who was from Guinea the other day and we were chatting and he said, I told him, I was like, you can take the kid out of Africa, but you can't take Africa out of the kid. Um, and so my first day serving with City Relief was in East Harlem, um, right uh, in front of an African hair braiding salon, which um, allowed me to feel right at home uh, from where I grew up. So I love New York City. I, I've, it's, it's an international city. It's, it's, it has a gravitational pull. So people come from all over the world. 
um, you know, different, uh, there's an energy to it. There's a, you know, it is, it is one of those cities that will chew you up and spit you out. If, um, you know, if you're, if you're not able to kind of keep up with the pace and, um, and it does have some grit to it, depending on where you go. I mean, there's a glam, you know, the glam of, of Midtown and Broadway and um, Times Square. Uh, but then there's, you know, the outer boroughs, there's parts of uh, Harlem and Manhattan, even where that, there, there's just a lot of pain and a lot of uh, neglect. New York City is, uh, I think, the city with the most billionaires of any city in America. Really? And, and the city with the most homeless people of any city in America. So you have the, this wide divide of just this, you know, surplus of resources and then this lack and it's right on top of each other. So, um, yeah, that's why New York, uh, especially with the work that I, that I do. Wow. What, so you mentioned you can take the kid out of Africa. You cannot take the Africa out of the kids. So what is unique about the homelessness crisis in the U S compared to poverty around the world? Yeah, I, I think one of the most interesting things is just the the discrepancy, the the just the cognitive dissonance uh, of a country with so much wealth um, and so much um, access. I mean, um, and then at the same time, uh, so much need and so much um, you know poverty and, and and people who are hurting. So it's it's the discrepancy. I mean, I think people come to the United States, like with this idea of, you know, pursuing the American dream and uh, in New York city, if you fly into JFK and then you take a train to Penn station, you'll get out of the train and you'll be stepping over people who are sleeping on the ground. Um, and I think that there is a, 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 a challenge in that. There's like, why, like, I think people from other countries even are going, what the heck, uh, why is this happening in the United States? What, why are they allowing this to take place? Um, and I think, you know, even if you look at, like, talk to kids, I mean, kid, if you bring kids into New York and you walk around with them, they'll ask the question, you know, why, what is happening? Why is it okay? Why is this okay? Why, why are we tolerating human beings um, who don't have access to food and, and clothing and shelter in uh, housing um, in, a, in a country where there is an abundance of, of all of those things. So I think that is one of the most unique features of homelessness in America is that um, everybody who kind of is able to think critically is able to look at this and go, it's just, it doesn't make sense. There's a cognitive dissonance there. Okay, so when we think about the unhoused community, what do you think is the main reason people fall into homeless, homelessness, especially in New York City, but maybe other areas of the United States as well. It's not something that they wake up one day and hope they get to do. Yeah. And I think that's, but I, but I honestly, I think that's the kind of the misconception. I think um, a lot of people in America and, and, you know, other in Europe and elsewhere um, have this idea that homeless people want to be homeless, that they don't, you know, that they're service resistant, that they don't, actually you know desire a place to call their own or they don't want to work for it and so you know it's it's a problem because you know the biggest leading the leading cause of homelessness in america in you know based on the research i've done and based on what i've seen is is cost of living um if you look at the cost of living um in the united states it's skyrocketed over the last 20 30 years um and there has not been a wage uh, that increase that has kept up. So if you look at the wage, you know, the living wage uh, of the average uh, American, it's, it's, you know, way 
um, a, a living wage is way above what the actual minimum wage is or about what people actually make. So there's this huge gap between the ability to afford a home or an apartment um, and the ability to pay for it with by working a, a, a low wage job. Um, so in, in New York specifically, it's the cost of living is outrageous. Um, it's just so expensive. Um, and so you, you know, you can't live on $40,000 a year. It's just impossible. Um, and so, you know, people are being priced out of their apartments and then gentrification is a huge deal. I mean, so like when, when everyone sort of, there was like, you know, the white flight, all the white folks who like left the urban areas and went into the suburbs. And then there was this retraction where a lot of those white folks who actually moved into the suburbs, their kids ended up moving back into the cities because of that's where all the energy was, that's where the jobs were, that's where the tech industry is, that's where fashion and, and commerce. And so like all these people started moving back. So if you look at Brooklyn or you look at Harlem and even now the South Bronx, um, these, are, these are areas that used to be um, primarily uh, minority communities, but have been gentrifying and the pricing has gone up and that's pushed a lot of people into the margins, into the shelter system and into the streets. So um, yeah, and then, so, so contrary to like the belief that, you know, homeless people are just addicts or they're just mentally ill and that's why they're out in the street. Um, you know, the leading reason in my view is that it's just a lack of affordable housing um, and a wage gap that hasn't kept up. Um, but there's other, other factors as well. Again, the, the one thing I tell people a lot is if you've met one homeless person, you've met one homeless person. Um, so every person has a unique story and um, there it's, it's impossible to paint with a broad brush. Absolutely. And my eyes were open to that in one of your previous podcast episodes with Deetra, um, who honestly, she could be my next door neighbor. And here she was really, really wrestling with homelessness. So we're all just steps away. I mean, really. Yeah, okay. A second ago, you or a few minutes ago, you talked about getting off the, the train at Penn Station. Your eyes are open. Um, maybe you're a kid walking along the streets of New York City for the first time. My kids have, have been there and they've done that. What was your first introduction to the reality of homelessness? Yeah, I mean, my, my introduction, again, goes back to sort of the different context that I was in. So my first introduction to the reality of homelessness as a concept globally was was in Cameroon with global poverty with people who were living in a garbage dump or people who were um, you know living in a tiny little hut a mud hut with a tin roof and uh, kids would you know sleep outside and there was just lots of developing world poverty that um, you know that I think made me think about things differently um, when I came to the United States, though, uh, as a freshman in high school permanently, but then I was in the United States in, in fifth grade as well. My parents were back for for a, what you know missionaries would call a furlough, uh, where they would come, where they you know are serving overseas, and then they come back for a few months to you know raise money, talk to supporters, and get refreshed. Um, so my parents would do that every couple of years, and so we would travel back to Hershey. So fifth and sixth grade, I was in Hershey, and I remember um, at a Wendy's. Um, my parents ended up connecting with a gentleman um, who I'll call Tim. Uh, and Tim was in line at the Wendy's behind us, and he was a Vietnam vet. Um, he uh, was sleeping out of his car. He was also a truck driver, but his struggle with addiction and his PTSD and uh, the trauma that he experienced in, in Vietnam really led him to, to being sort of in a, in a tough spot. So 
Um, he ended up becoming sort of adopted by my family and he was around on Sundays after he would come to church, with my family, and then he would go out to lunch with us afterwards, it became a routine. And so he was someone who, who really, I think it was the first American, uh, like home introduction to homelessness, even though, again, he would argue probably that more often than not, he wasn't homeless. Um, and then, I mean, beyond that, I think you know, just experiencing, you know, cause I was in Hershey, there's not much homeless people, <laughs> how many homeless people in Hershey, Pennsylvania, there are, they are there, but they're not like super visible. Um, and so, you know, when I would travel into, you know, the city for different, um, we would, you know, for a Broadway show or something or a class trip, I would, I would see it. Um, mm-hmm. But because of the, I think the, the difference between developing world poverty and American poverty, I would say that maybe, I think initially when in my, in my youth, um, I probably, I was probably a little more judgmental than I'd like to admit, um, because how can you be homeless in the United States? Right? Like, why don't you? Know? So it's so easy for us to like, this is compared to the kid who's living in the garbage dump in Cameroon. It's not the same. Um, and so I think, you know, initially I was probably a little skeptical and, um, but I think over time I realized that the kid in the jar- garbage dump and the, the man, you know, panhandling outside the train station, um, have more in common than I'd like to admit. I think we're always fearful of the things that we don't understand. And we're quick to, to make assumptions that we just don't know. Um, so on another podcast, you were asked who were the people and places that helped shape you. And I can say that you are a person that has helped shaped me. So thank you for that. Um, you've taught me so much. You, I always glean whatever you're saying. I, I want to learn more and know more from you. But what's been the most influential resource for you as you as you kind of go through this progression of of understanding more and learning more um, from the kid who was kind of skeptical and, and cynical to to where you are now? I think the the main source and this may seem like the most obvious thing in the world, but the main source are the people that I've gotten to hang out with in the streets of New York city. Um, I mean, I've been working now in this space for 12 years, um, just about, and, uh, I've had countless conversations, countless, uh, interactions, uh, with folks who were experiencing homelessness. Um, I, you know, I even had a gentleman who lived with my family for, you know, two years, um, who had no place to live and, uh, he ended up staying with us. And so he and I would have long conversations uh, in the backyard about just life and different things. Um, and so the people that have really shaped me the most, the people that we've had the, I've had the privilege of, of serving um, from a, you know, from an, a sort of an expert or, or people who are in this space uh, who I look to um, I know uh, you know, there's, there's so many, there's so many people that I've had the, benefit of, of meeting and talking to, um, the book, when helping hurts, um, was a book that really impacted me early on, um, in my journey because they, you know, talk about the, the realities of trying to make a difference in a community and address poverty, but in a way that doesn't enable, or it doesn't, you know, um, proliferate or expand the poverty, but actually addresses it in a holistic and dignifying way. And it caused me to ask a lot of questions about how we do what we do. Um, and so that book definitely was influential. Uh, I shared with you my my first podcast guest was Shane Claiborne. Uh, he wrote the book Irresistible Revolution that had a profound impact on me as well. Um, and then, you know, theologically, uh, I would say that Greg Boyd uh, out of St. Paul, Minnesota, is another person who, um, you know, because of my again, I, my podcast isn't 
strictly speaking, a Christian podcast. Uh, but as a person of faith, Greg Boyd has really helped me sort of line up my theology and my worldview um, with my actions and my you know prioritization in terms of how I serve and how I engage. So um, yeah, lots of people um, having have really uh, helped me. And um, just a couple of their names come to mind is Josh Dean at, at human.myc as uh, an advocate that has really you know been great as a thought partner. Uh, Deb Paget. Uh, is someone who wrote the book Housing First. Um, another woman named Deb Berkman is an attorney uh, at NILAG. So, so many people. Um, I just like to learn. So I surround myself with people who who help me learn the new things every day. Mm-hmm. And you've learned a lot. Um, you've been in your position for a number of years. I know I've heard you say over time, you know, you were you worked at Starbucks and then you worked at a, a countertop cabinet store. Um, direct sales and things like that. So now you're the CEO of a nonprofit that is making big strides in New York City. It's very influential, partnering with a lot of uh, community organizations that are also doing work on the street. What has happened? What has fundamentally changed about serving the homeless community from when you first started, when you first, the first day that you showed up to to volunteer or, or work as a paid staff to where you are right now? Yeah, a lot has changed. Um, so to take that question sort of organizationally, um, you know, City Relief, you know, when I started, we were the relief bus and then we were became New York City Relief. And um, and then we realized that New York City Relief that serves in Newark, New Jersey and Patterson, New Jersey and has a base in Elizabeth, New Jersey doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, so we rebranded a year back to, to be just City Relief. Um, and you know, we as an organization have shifted a lot in terms of uh, how we engage people more holistically. Um, so, as an organization, I've seen a ton of change. Um, as far as homelessness in general, um, I started working right after the initial housing crisis—the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac bubble popping. You know, the whole mortgage crisis. People, you know, upside down on their mortgages and. So that's when I started, and a lot of cities were were struggling to make their budgets. Um, New York City was no exception. So the mayor of New York at the time um, actually slashed a uh, rental subsidy um, for a number of people in New York called the Financial Advantage Program because he was trying to save money because their budget was their city budget was upside down and they were trying to save money. Um, but it was ultimately a really terrible decision because it ended up forcing you know, thousands of families uh, out of their apartments um, and into the homeless shelters in New York City. Um, and so I started right at that point, right as these families were all like this massive influx of homelessness was hitting in New York and um, and really the, the nation. Um, and so the numbers just really just kept, you know, skyrocketed uh, for the first few years. Um, and then I was, you know, in, in Harlem, uh, in New York, uh, there was the K2 sort of epidemic where a lot of people started, you know, ingesting this really cheap sort of, they call it spice, they call it K2, they call it a number of things. It's basically, you know, sort of this, um, you know, the, the candles that people light for incense and people would be, you know, smoking that and it was making people insane. Um, and so I, I was right in the streets during that whole thing. And it was really, really traumatic. Um, and then, you know, more recently, uh, street homelessness has just been on the rise, I think, as a result of the, the COVID pandemic um, and a lot of other, um, you know, factors around economic insecurity and, and lack of housing. And 
Um, and then, you know, emptying the jails uh, without, you know, a whole lot of investment in infrastructure to transition people from, you know, Rikers or from prison into um, a more sustainable existence. There's a lot of people in the street now who are struggling to just make ends meet. So over the last 12 years, there's been a lot of change. The numbers of homelessness has sort of fluctuated a little bit, but it's mostly just skyrocketed. There's been a, over the course of a decade has just gone up. Um, and obviously now post pandemic, we have no clue how many homeless people there are. Um, and we're still trying to figure out what that means for the future. Um, so yeah, all that to say is homelessness has changed and it's, and it's still the same. Um, and so there's been a, in, there's been some incremental improvements, but also there's been a lot of backsliding and, um, a lot of bad policy that has impacted a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> you um you you mentioned the relief bus a few minutes ago um you were you've mentioned we've talked city relief we're very familiar with it and it gave me pause that maybe some of our listeners are not familiar with the relief bus with the model that city relief offers so let's go there for a second um many organizations serve the homeless across the united states large cities small cities what makes city relief different what just tell us a little bit more about what you do and what the model is we are we are a mobile outreach program uh so when i say mobile i mean we we don't we don't have a building we don't have a uh, a drop-in center yet um we don't even have an office at this point um but we have these vehicles we have buses that have been customized we have uh airport shuttles that have been customized um and what we do is we make uh, a meal uh, with a soup that's been uh, donated by Park 100 Foods, uh, which is a great company that donate that gives soup that makes the soup for Panera and Wendy's and a number of other huge companies, and um, they donate the, the soup to us, um, the ingredients, and then we make it fresh every day. And we get rolls donated by a local bakery uh, in Newark called Texeras. Um, and we get socks donated by Bombas, um, which are the best socks in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and we take these supplies and we go to where we know the people are. We know people who are struggling. We know we can identify locations that are strategically, um, you know, centrally located. So, for example, we, we identify areas where there's other direct services for homeless folks involved. Uh, we identify areas that are accessible by public transit. Uh, we identify areas that are proximate to uh, train stations and subway stations where we know people are, are hanging out who are stuck um, and struggling. And so we go to where they are and we create these sort of parties. We, we, we have these block parties where we take our vehicles in, we set up on the sidewalk. Uh, we have tables and chairs for people to sit down and eat and relax and just be you know treated with some really good and really high-end customer service by our volunteers and by our staff um, and then what we do is we leverage this party and this experience this pop-up experience to build relationship and trust with folks who are on the margins or people who are hurting um, many of them are street homeless many are in shelters um, many are not homeless yet some are just economically insecure or, or food insecure. Um, last Friday or two Fridays ago, we met a woman on the sidewalk who, uh, as she was just standing there, we rolled up and she had just lost her job that morning. And she was just in tears. She was just, uh, and she was just sitting there wait and kind of despondent, like just sort of, what do I do now? I wasn't planning on this. I was and, and, our, and our outreach vehicle just rolled up right to where she was, parked, unloaded. And this party sort of 
developed around her. Uh, and she ended up talking to me about the fact that she lost her job and she wanted help, you know, accessing where she get food pantry information. And we collected her contact information because the other piece that we do as an organization is we understand that a party, a transaction, a meal is only the first step. Um, homelessness is not solved uh, in a transaction. Um, it, most people, it takes years uh, to fall into homelessness. And honestly, unfortunately, it often takes uh, just as long to get out of it. Um, so what we try to do is we try to provide that sort of holistic uh, net where if someone comes for the meal or a pair of socks or just the, the music or uh, you know someone lost their job and they just want someone to talk to, we will then always leverage that that interaction to point them to additional services, to our follow-up team um, who will circle back with people. Um, during the pandemic, we got people phones so we could stay in touch with them. We have implemented a hotel program. So if someone's in the street in the winter uh, and it's gonna drop, temperature's gonna drop below 32 degrees, we will put someone up in a hotel uh, for a few nights so they don't risk freezing to death. Um, and then again, everything is about that next connection. So at City Relief, we tell people, we create connections for people who are um, at risk of homelessness or experiencing homelessness um, because the bureaucracy of getting help uh, when you're stuck in that vortex is incredibly challenging. And just having an ally and an advocate who can not only point you to the right place, but also advocate for you along the way uh, is sometimes the difference between someone making it and not. I love that visual of this woman sitting there and this street party pops up around her. And I will, I will just add that that street party is spot on. There's music playing that makes you feel like you're maybe at a Starbucks or Hobby Lobby. Um, you, I mean, you're met with friendly people, the best soup in town, the best bread. Oh my goodness. Um, quality socks that are just amazing. Um, so there's this unique model. You're on the front lines. Um, you're going into gritty areas. You're going into hot areas in the summer with not a lot of refreshment. Um, but you are showing up week after week after week. Um, and so there's two questions I want to ask about this model. You mentioned the volunteers that show up the, and then the quality of service that you're providing to the people that that come and who might be hungry or cold or just need a little help. So from what I see, there's two parts of this, this scenario, and I think there's more that play into it, but two that I want to talk about. So let's talk about the dignity. You mentioned the Panera level of soup, the quality soup, the quality products. Um, talk a little bit why you're, about why you're intentional about this. For so many reasons. I mean, I'm convinced that um, that the dignity that we offer people uh, is the key to gaining the credibility that we need to help them. Um, so many people in the homelessness services world uh, are trying to do as, as much as possible with as little as possible. Um, and so what they're trying to do is they're trying to stretch finite resources so thin that the people they serve end up getting leftovers or getting, um, you know, the the torn clothing or the the dirty clothing in the donation bin or, um, and and too often we treat homeless people as um, 
uh, as as responsible for their situation. And whether we know it or not, if we don't offer them the dignity of uh, our best um, or the highest quality items, um, what we'll be doing is we'll be accidentally reinforcing the systemic belief that homeless people deserve less. Um, and so for us, we have to counter that narrative intentionally and right out of the gate. So everything we do in terms of creating this environment that's so dignifying, that's high touch, customer service to the max, what we're doing in my view is we're actually sort of interrupting the cycle uh, and the and the narrative around what it what these people are worth, um, and so because by communicating to people that they are worth our best, what we can then do is remind them that they are worth their their own best. They are worth putting in the effort themselves. One one story that epitomizes this for me is from years and years ago, um, a gentleman named Willie, who was homeless in in New York City for forty years. That's 40, 40. Um, and he would come to our outreach every week and he would get his soup and he would sit down on the ground uh, and he would not talk to anybody. He just ate his soup and met, kept to himself. Um, but one day a volunteer ended up insisting, her name was uh, Jean. She ended up uh, insisting on talking to Willie and asking him his name and finding out what his story was. And, and she built a relationship. She volunteered with us every week. And so she got to know him and found out eventually that he was in the hospital. Um, he had an issue, a health issue, and ended up in the hospital. And so she arranged to get balloons and, um, you know, got some people together. And they all went to the hospital to visit Willie. Um, and he described the story in, in, in one of our events that by saying when she walked in with the balloons, when she walked in with this, you know, this dignity and, and offered that to him, the, the way he phrased it was, he said, if she believed in me, maybe I could believe in myself. And, and this is this a, a dynamic that I think a lot of people don't realize is that you can lend faith, you can lend hope, you can lend belief to other people. It's something that you can actually give people, uh, even when they don't believe it themselves, they don't have any faith, they don't have any hope. Um, but if you have it for them, you can lend it to them. Um, but it has to have tangible, it's got to be experiential. It can't just be theoretical or like, or just, you know, words. So by giving people the best, by offering the dignity of choice, by saying, it's not like, take what I'm giving you. It's, you may have this or this, what would you prefer? Um, that simple act of saying, it's your choice. You tell us what you want. Um, it communicates. And I think it fans the flames of belief that I, oh yeah, I actually deserve to, to have choice. Um, so for us, it's, and, and again, for, as an outreach organization, if we're going to connect someone from point A to point B, we have to have credibility to, to be able to encourage people to do that. So it's also very pragmatic. I mean, it's philosophical, it's theological, but it's also super pragmatic in that by giving people the best, we earn the right to speak into their lives and say, hey, is there any way we can help connect you? So we are able as an organization to build deep trust with people very quickly uh, because we are offering them the best that we have to give. You know, um, that reminds me of a story. Um, I've been at the bus and serving alongside you and your amazing team. Um, and sometimes you can just tell that somebody's coming in feeling a little agitated. Maybe they're looking for a, hot, uh, a fight. And usually when I'm there, it's hot. 
everyone's a little uncomfortable. There's a line, you're hungry. Um, and there was one time somebody came in just on fire, just a little angry. And I look over and our mutual friend, Debbie, this tiny little grandma had the situation diffused. So at this point she's offered him a cold lemonade. She's welcomed him into this party on the street, just like she would welcome me into her house. And she's asking him questions. What's your name? Oh, you know, can I get you some socks? Wanting to know more about him and making him comfortable. And she de-escalated a man that was larger than her in seconds because she saw him, you know? Hmm. I can... First of all, I can visibly see that scenario playing out because I know Debbie. <laughs> I, I think I, I'm not even surprised. Um, but secondly, I think, you know, this is something where a lot of homeless services and homeless service providers miss the boat completely. Um, they, uh, they are wondering and sometimes confused, why are there fights in our in our building why are people so antagonistic and hostile now i get it sometimes people there's nothing you can do they're just so angry and so traumatized um and and it doesn't matter how great of an experience you give them they're they're going to have issues that's just that's but and, and so and one of the things i would point out though is that that's universal that's not just homelessness that's that's everybody um i you know i've described a scenario where i was at a concert festival this like festival and, and oceans, I forget where I was in, in, it was in New Jersey. I think it was Atlantic city or one of those areas on the, one of those beach towns. And there was this festival and it was Dave Matthews band was playing and it was going to be this incredible. And there was hundreds of people and we all paid this astronomical amount of money just to get into the festival. And sure enough, we get in there and there's a brawl happening like all around. So all that to say is this is not unique to homeless people. There are everywhere, everywhere you go. I mean, sports, I mean, how many fights have we seen at sports events? Right. So, um, so there are people who just can't, you know, just having a bad day and the perfect scenario happens and they just can't be, can't be helped in that moment. However, um, I believe that the environment you create will re be reflected in the respect and the attitude of the people you're serving. So there has been many times where people in the street have been instigated by someone else who was angry and having a bad day, but because they were at our event, because there was the music, our volunteers, the environment, they chose to walk away. I've seen people take a hit and walk away, which is unfathomable um, because they didn't want to disrespect in an environment that shows them so much respect. And so I'm convinced that if we created environments in our shelters and our services that were not just utilitarian, that were not just like about transactions or getting people in a bed at the meal, like if it wasn't just about distribution and it was actually about community and environment and dignity, I think we would see fewer fights. I think people would get on their feet faster. Um, I think this idea that you're, we, we shouldn't make shelters too comfortable or homeless people will never leave, that is a lie. I don't, I don't think that, I think that's completely backwards. Um, I believe that if you made a shelter so dignifying that people would remember like, oh, wow, I am a human being made in the image of God, I might deserve better, they will aspire to something better for their for themselves. They rather than sort of settling into this, well, 
I guess I'm just a homeless person who doesn't deserve any better. So all that to say is the environment we create does, I believe, impact uh, our ability to help people uh, envision a better future for themselves and help them move forward, as opposed to the opposite, which I think is way too common um, in homeless services. Well, you really do foster genuine friendships, genuine community, which you said builds that relationship and trust. Um, but that takes me to my next question. So community, um, obviously it's the, it's the party at the bus on the sidewalk, but your community is actually nationwide. You have this immersive volunteer experience. People come and bring groups from all over the United States, probably all over the world. Um, why, why do, why do they choose to do that? Why do you choose to host them? For, for a variety of reasons for us, um, we know that our attempt to address homelessness on a macro level is a lot, um, it hangs more on the messaging and the experience of our volunteers than it even does on the interactions that we offer our our friends in the street. Um, so for example, it's one thing for us to address homelessness in New York City by connecting, you know, dozens of individuals every week to resources like shelter and programs and jobs and et cetera. Um, that's very important and it's 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 life-changing work and I'm I'm proud of it and we're going to keep doing it more and more and more and hopefully in more places. Um, however, we also understand that there are, you know, 330 million Americans. Um, and, you know, if, if you know, 10% of those folks uh, were able to change how they viewed their homeless neighbors and have an interaction with uh, their homeless neighbors, um, they, they may actually be able to get involved and make a difference in their own community. So we see our volunteer experience as an opportunity to educate, equip, and empower uh, people who come and serve with us from all over the world to take what they experience in our events back home and then get involved right where they are. So we've seen this over and over again where people come out, they serve with us, they're like, oh, wow, I can actually do this. This is something that's not that hard. Um, maybe we can get involved at home. Maybe we can start something ourselves. And they end up taking the, the ideology and the practic you know, practical things that we do back with them and they adapt them for their own context. And so for us, we're able to make exponential impact on homelessness uh, on a large scale that we wouldn't do, uh, we wouldn't be able to if it was just us in the streets every day. I know that that model has been replicated in Indianapolis near where I am, um, Dallas, more places too. And that dignity, the choice model um, is one that our local food pantry uses after people had gone out to visit city relief. So that really is spreading. You talked a little bit about um, practical things, practical things. Obviously not everyone's going to go start a nonprofit to feed the hungry, but what is one practical thing that you do on a semi-regular basis that you can do to help your homeless neighbors? And then I'm going to also ask, you're in the city. You probably see it more often than I do in suburban Indianapolis, um, or maybe people who are listening to us aren't. Um, I mean, what's just one thing that I could do in my minivan to help my homeless neighbors? And what do you do? For me, it's it's always been about acknowledging 
the people who are on the margins and, and, and identifying them and, and seeing them. Um, one story that I've told probably hundreds of times, so you've probably heard this before, Kara, but um, is we used to do this outreach that we would, uh, on Thursday evenings, we would take volunteers out at, around Penn Station and we would break up into small groups and give them socks and hygiene kits and, and have them just engage people. Um, and on one particular night, there was a woman uh, who we saw regularly named uh, Maureen. Um, I don't know if she's still alive. I don't know, um, or if she's in Vegas. She used to occasionally travel out to Vegas for random reasons. Um, but she would have all these belongings all around her, all this these bags of stuff. And so we would engage her. And my colleague Brett Hartford um, was doing leading a team. And this is so. This is really his story I'm telling. But um, he described to me that uh, there, Maureen asked him if she if he could watch her belongings um, while she went to the bathroom inside Penn Station. So he agreed and decided that it would be interesting to sit down right where Maureen was sitting and kind of see the world through her eyes for a few minutes. And the what he described was um, looks from the past, the people passing by of disgust, uh, judgment, sneering, um, you know, uh, condescension. And it wasn't long before he was in tears because people assumed all the stuff was his. Uh, and so they were judging him and looking at him the same way they would have looked at Maureen. And, um, and so to me, the, the best thing we can do is, you know, make eye contact, smile, nod your head, hey, say hello. Um, that makes a big difference. Um, that makes a huge difference in someone's, you know, being able to process their experience as feeling invisible and feeling like we're like losing a sense of ourselves in homelessness. Um, so just making eye contact is a huge thing, smiling um, and acknowledging people, asking them how they're doing. Uh, if someone decides to ask, see that as an opening to ask for money and you don't feel comfortable doing that, it's okay saying, oh, I'm sorry, not today. Um, it's, it's not a big deal, but just saying hello and acknowledging them is huge. Um, if you want to take it a step further, another thing I do is I usually will carry a pair of Bomba socks with me in my briefcase or my backpack. Um, I will sometimes carry a hygiene kit or gift cards to local fast food restaurants or coffee shops. Um, I know another person or I've been, I was introduced through the book I'm working on through uh, the, the publisher I'm working with. Um, is, he told me he has a friend that literally takes out $20 in ones every Monday. And his goal is throughout the week to give it away. So that's his, so he gives out a dollar here, a dollar there to, to people he meets on the street. And when he sees them panhandling or he sees someone on the side of the road, um, he gives them a dollar. And that's one of the ways that he just proactively tries to bring a little love and bring a little blessing to people's lives. And um, so I think there's all kinds of creative ways. I, I know another friend of mine, uh, his daughter is, uh, was, I think she was eight or nine um, when she started assembling toiletry kits um, for folks in the street. And she called them kindness kits. Uh, and uh, she insisted that her parents stop the car when they, she saw someone on the side of the road and she would get out and run it over and offer it to the person. And, um, and it just, it changed not just their lives, but it also impacted her parents. And um, she actually ended up insisting that they come out and volunteer with us one week. Uh, they travel all the way from, I think it's their, I think they live in Kansas uh, or somewhere in that area. And they came out and volunteered with us because their eight-year-old was insistent. Um, we couldn't technically have her register as a volunteer, but it's a public street. So she came with her parents and hung out. Um, but there's all kinds of things. I mean, again, I think acknowledging the humanity of the people around you 
Um, again, be safe. I would always encourage people like I'm a big guy, you know, <laughs> I'm not a small person. So um, I, I understand going into these conversations in these places maybe a little easier for me than some. Um, and I tell people all the time, just don't, don't be, don't put yourself in a situation that would make you feel unsafe or uncomfortable. Um, maybe bring someone with you if you're, if you're worried. Um, another thing that a friend of mine recently said is just maybe just leave 15 minutes early uh, for where you're going and anticipate that you may end up bumping into somebody who needs to talk. And that doesn't have to be a homeless person. Maybe it's a colleague, maybe it's a, a neighbor, maybe it's someone, you know, outside the grocery store. So I think there's all kinds of things that can be done, um, that would make a huge difference in someone's life. So if I keep socks in my car, if I take my little hotel soaps and make a kindness kit, I can drop those off at the corner when I don't have any cash on me. I love that. Absolutely. What do you see um, as the biggest barrier to becoming permanently housed? The people that we see on sidewalks, in the medians, um, on the street corners, do they want to be there? Yeah, the, the, no, no, they don't. I mean, so the way I describe it to people is I say that, um, especially in New York City, so New York City is interesting because there's actually a right to shelter, um, which means that people uh, in New York are, are legally, um, the city is legally obligated to provide a shelter bed to anyone who has no place to stay. Um, it's a unique thing that happened through a lawsuit many years ago. Now there's lots of problems with the way that law is then enforced. So the shelters are not particularly popular. Um, they are often considered to be dangerous. And um, a lot of people in the street don't wanna be in the shelter. Now, that doesn't mean they wanna be in the street. So I, I tell people, I'm like, people don't choose to sleep outside, they choose not to sleep in shelters. Um, and so the barrier really is um, the, the privacy um, the privacy of, of being able to have your own room, your own bathroom. Um, also the uh, access to, um, uh, to, to someone's like community. Uh, so for example, I know a lot of places are like, well, we'll just build a bunch of apartments outside the city, uh, and people can go there. And it's like, but everything they know, every income stream, every relationship is in the city. Uh, so you can't expect people to just, like move out of town. Like that's just not realistic. Like they, and once someone has experienced that they can survive sleeping outside, um, you know, they're going to be picky about what they accept because they've already survived so much. So I think the biggest barrier is offering resources to our guests that are, uh, and to people in the street that are acceptable for that person's situation. So um, lack of support, lack of uh, mental health, services, lack of, um, you know, like I said, single rooms where people can have the freedom to come and go as they please. Um, one person we recently were working with was super frustrated because they were placed placed into an apartment, but it was a supportive housing apartment, meaning they were going to have someone uh, checking on them because it was uh, a place that was designed for people with with mental, with mental health issues. And um, and so there was supportive, I, uh, you know, supportive aspects to this uh, this room, but she was frustrated. She's like, I don't want someone to check on me. I want my freedom. I want to be able to just be, I want my own key. And like, I don't, I shouldn't have to have this person checking on me. I'm an adult. Like I've been taking care of myself, surviving in the street for, for years. I don't need someone 
like knocking on my door once a day and making sure I'm okay. Like, it's just, it's like paternalistic and it's sort of condescending. And she's like, I don't want that. So um, I think sometimes we forget that these are folks who, um, who again, really value and appreciate their own uh, flexibility and their own freedom. And, um, and so we have to offer services that are consistent with those values. Um, and I think if we did, if we actually identified, um, you know, so like in Finland, for example, in Helsinki, I have a friend who works there. Kara, you know her. She's amazing. Her name's Johanna. Um, she, I went out and visited her and we walked around the city and she told me that in Finland, they don't have any shelter buildings, really. Uh, all their low-income housing is all mixed in with all the other housing. So it's sort of the scattered. So you don't know if your neighbor is there because they're poor or because they can afford it or because... And so there's no um, like like bad area in the city because they just have it spread out throughout the entire, entire area. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, to me, that's a really good model because it allows people to have the dignity and, and freedom and support that they need and options. So to me, if we really were serious about getting people off the street and ending homelessness, we would be making massive investments in um, low, in, like affordable housing um, and providing support systems for people where they can have the freedom uh, and the transportation to and from where they want to go and, and what their, where their life and their community is already. Um, and we can't expect them to just drop everything because we decided to give them an apartment like 10 miles away where they'll have to take four buses, two trains and hitchhike the last, you know, hundred yards or so. Um, we need to do better and we need to provide options for people that are acceptable. Will we see an end to homelessness? I hope so. I really do. I, I, I know it's, um, I'm skeptical um, because much like, you know, I think a lot of us, <laughs> a lot of us look at the division in our country and um, look at the, you know, the polarization and we, we see that getting real substantive systemic change uh, is just so difficult um, and, and it's going to require a mindset shift. Um, where we don't blame the victim, where we don't, um, you know, we stop seeing people on food stamps or Medicaid as freeloaders or um, insisting that they are somehow, you know, draining a drain on the system. Um, and it would require a complete shift in, in thinking around um, what, uh, what people uh, want, what they need and what they're, you know, what we can provide as a society. Technically, financially, we could afford to end homelessness tomorrow. Um, if we, if it was a prerogative, if it was a, a, if there was unity, if, if the, the country could, you know, get it, wrap their heads around the issue and, and make compromises and actually get things done, um, we could address homelessness. We saw that during the pandemic. Uh, during the pandemic, uh, one day it's, you know, it's there. The next day uh, we had people who could call a number and get into a hotel and isolate for 10 days um, because all of a sudden the funding was available and it was because it was a priority. So the question for me and the question I would ask anyone who's in leadership or government or whatever is, is ending homelessness a priority uh, or is it just a talking point? And I think unfortunately right now it's mostly just a talking point. So I'm skeptical, but um, I also I also am a person of faith, so miracles miracles can happen. Wow, thank you. 
I imagine it is hard to reconcile that skepticism with hope sometimes. So thank you for being so transparent. Speaking of hope, is there any hope you can share? What are you seeing? Is there any inspiration right now? Yeah, there's so many things. I mean, there's, um, there's first of all, the younger generation of Americans uh, are more activated and engaged on these kinds of issues than um, than I think we've seen in, in previous generations. So um, at least for a while. And, and so I, I think that that is something that gives me hope. I think that, that, again, the way my kids, my kids are 10 and eight and the way they are thinking about these issues and, um, you know, the way young people are, are, are showing up um, to serve. And, and during the pandemic, we, you know, we all our volunteers vanished basically, except for a small group of young people uh, who showed up every single day. Uh, and they ended up developing their own little community. They, they would go out to lunch after they served with us. And, um, and so, so, yeah, so I think that there's, uh, there's reason to hope that, that, that there are people who are really getting activated around this. Um, I would also say that, uh, you know, just the, um, the, the press and the attention that's being given to the homelessness issue, I think is encouraging. Um, I know, you know, a lot of, a lot of people develop their stereotypes and their stigmas about issues based on what they see in the media. Um, and I think that having more access uh, to the realities of what would lead someone to fall into homelessness is really important. So it kind of, you know, hopefully keeps the stereotypes down to a minimum. Um, so yeah, I, there's reason to hope and there's reason to believe that, um, that we can do something about it. And, Again, as for my sake, every time I find out about someone who's who we helped, I'm encouraged. So I'm encouraged every day because I hear about stories of people who come to our outreaches and who my team is working with who are changing the world. So yeah, I have every reason to be optimistic. That's amazing. And I I see that too. I, I see the hope um, rising up around you all. Um, the inspiring stories of life change, like I said, obviously the people that, that come needing a little extra help, but the people coming to help and the life change that you provide there, the life change that happens among your staff, um, that happens among the people who step up to donate, um, it's a community. And I think that that's, I see that across the, the nonprofit world. And I, I really think that that gives me hope. So I think that's fabulous. Um, I want to share a lot of the resources that you talked about in the show notes. So I'll be able to do that. And I also want to mention that I got to, to read a sneak preview of a book that you've written and it is phenomenal. It's this amazing storytelling that I've been enjoying for the last half hour or so, um, in book format and I couldn't stop reading. So tell me a little bit more about the book, the reason behind it and, and when can everybody else get a chance to read it too? So I've been working on this book for years um, and I have multiple iterations of it. Where I've landed currently is uh, it's a book. It's called same name as my podcast. It's called Neighbors with No Doors. Uh, the subtitle is um, what is the subtitle? It's Neighbors with No Doors, uh, The Truth About Homelessness and how you can make a difference. Um, because the goal of the book is to destigmify homelessness. And so the first four chapters 
part one uh, is just descriptions of, of uh, some of the stereotypes that people have around homelessness. So like there's four that I identify. One is that homeless people are lazy. One is that they are mentally ill. And one is that they're scary or dangerous. And then another one is that they're all addicts. Um, these are very commonly held assumptions. And so each chapter I, I try to, in a very, very light uh, way, um, try to tackle those stereotypes um, by kind of helping the reader, I hope, rethink what might lead someone into that situation. Um, it, it's intentionally accessible. Like I, I, I've also recognized that there's a lot of books out there on this topic, um, but most of them are pretty, uh, pretty dense and pretty sort of subject heavy. Um, and so I wanted to write something that a volunteer could read like on the plane from Indianapolis to New York um, because I wanted them to be more prepared and to rethink about these issues and but not be so deep that they couldn't even get through the first chapter or so without you know like a dissertation so um, and then the back half of the book part two is simply call to action it's how can you make a difference so I talk about giving away socks and giving away money and um, thinking about how an individual can make a difference. Uh, and then I talk about connecting people. So like I said, a, a transaction is only as good as a first step. So what's the connection point that they can make beyond the transaction? And then the, la and then the last two chapters are not, what can I do individually, but what can I do collectively? What can my small group do? What can my office do? My, you know, whatever it is. So um, that's the book in a nutshell. And uh, I'm hoping it'll be available to order um, hopefully in July, June. Um, I'll try to make it available for pre-order, I think. Um, but it's, again, it's it's very easy. It's 100 pages. And then the other part that you haven't seen, Kara, which is one of my favorite parts of the book that's going to be in the final version, uh, are the portraits. Um, Corey Hayes, uh, a phenomenal photographer on our team, um, uh, agreed to take portraits of several people that I've worked with personally over the years um, and then include their blurb uh, sort of their story in the book. So I'll have at the end of the book, I'll have, I think it's seven or eight uh, portraits uh, of folks that are, you know, real stories, real people that I know, and I've worked with who will hopefully humanize uh, the people that we serve. So I'm really excited about that. And then Dietra, who I interview in my podcast, Neighbors on the Doors, is actually writing the foreword. So I'm going to have a foreword written by uh, someone who has experienced homelessness and, and someone who can kind of talk about it uh, from her perspective. So I'm super excited. Honestly, I don't know what to expect. I have no idea, but I'm really proud of it. And I'm really hoping that it'll help people um, engage uh, the issue of homelessness in a more holistic way. Well, I always learn from you. Um, I have learned so much just sitting here um, in this last time we've had together and you are an excellent storyteller. So I have no doubt that any stories that are in that book are going to be uh, worth reading and hard to put down. I'm, I'm excited for you. Um, thank you. Thank you for letting me just take over your podcast today and move right in. I appreciate it. You know, you talk about engaging in a holistic way, and that's what you really are doing with your organization. And I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and help us understand more from an insider's point of view of what's going on in our communities and on our streets. And I know that I think we've all learned more today. So thank you, Josiah. <laughs> well, I appreciate you thinking of this. Um, this is super helpful and I'm really excited about uh, what's to come. Well, thank you. Um, 
thank you so much. And um, I look forward to connecting and we'll share all of that information in the show notes. Amazing. So to all my listeners, thanks for paying attention. Hopefully you'll catch me on my next episode when I have someone else answering the questions that I get to ask them. <laughs>